Today, private schools, Princetonian plutocrats, and how inequality has broken the American brain. I'm Cliff Mark, and this is Good in Theory. Today on Good in Theory, we have Matthew Stewart. He's the author of six books, including his most recent called The 9.9%, The New Aristocracy That's Entrenching Inequality and Warping Our Culture. This is a book about class and inequality in America. And Matthew, I want to thank you for coming on and thank you for writing this book because not only is it full of insight and great arguments and analysis, but Unlike a lot of books about inequality, it's actually a lot of fun to read. It's got all this rich anthropological detail about the upper middle class in America. You're having a lot of fun. It reads almost like satire. So I would recommend this book to anyone interested in the topic of inequality. And I've already recommended it to other people. Thanks for writing it. To begin our discussion, I'd like you to explain why it is your book is about the 9.9%. Why are we talking about them and not the 10% or the 1% or any other group? Right. So, uh, and thanks, thanks for the, um, comments about the, uh, writing. So the, the, the 9.9% is just a kind of mathematical heuristic, but let me, let me lay it out. So it doesn't sound mysterious. Um, um, the story about rising inequality is pretty well known now. Over the last half century, it's been increasing dramatically, especially in the United States. And I apologize, the book is focused mainly on the United States, but some of it does have global implications. Um, uh, and it's usually told as a story of us versus them, with us being the 99% and them being the 1%. But when mm-hmm. you look at the numbers, that's not actually what they tell us. So the wealth distribution numbers show that all of the relative increase in uh, wealth concentration has gone to the top 0.1%. So it's really just that sliver at the top. And even within that, it's the top you know, 0.01% that have gotten the lion's share. Mm-hmm. Um, and then conversely, all of the relative decline has gone to the bottom 90%. So everybody in the, or every decile uh, or centile below the 90th percentile has lost relative wealth share, which is itself is quite an mm-hmm. astonishing fact. But then, of course, that leaves this group in between the 9.9%. Um, uh, and that's the, the focus of, of the book. Um, Actually, just let me interrupt you for a second there and um, summarize the class structure that you've just laid out. So you're dividing up America into three groups, right? At the bottom, 90% of people... They're pretty much stagnant. They haven't enjoyed any of the growth in the economy over the past 40 years. They're stuck. And at the tippy-tippy top, there's the 0.1%. Billionaires are in here. People just getting fabulously rich. All the, you know, people just killing it over the same time period. And between the super rich and the vast majority, there's still the 9.9%. They're not nearly as rich as the billionaires, but they're still doing a lot better than 90% of people. These are your upper middle class people, your doctors, your lawyers, management consultants, people like that, right? So you took this group of people as the subject of your book. Why are they so important? Why are they more important to the story than, say, the 0.1% super rich? Yeah, so so the nine point nine percent. First of all, is actually in wealth terms 
bigger than those other two groups. So they're important for that reason. Um, but there, there, there's a, a general abstract point that I think is very important to get across, and that's that um, inequality is a lo- about a lot more than dollars and cents. So um, we tend to think of it just as the fact that you know there are a few billionaires running around and lots of people with not enough money. But in fact, it, it, it gets into us in a significant way. So by framing the issue this way in, in a complicated three-part scheme where we, some of us may be members or aspiring to be members, I want to reframe inequality as, a, as not an us versus them issue, but as a, mm. we're all implicated to some degree. Um, and I suppose the second more concrete reason is that this 9.9% is what really drives our culture. I mean, the 0.1%, they do drive the culture, but um, they're kind of idiosyncratic, they're bizarre, they're, they're alien creatures. Mm-hmm. For day-to-day, you know, what people aspire to in the United States is to become a member of the 9.9%. That's what defines our life goals. It, it, it seeps into our culture, it, it, it sets our values, it tells us what's good, what's bad, and who's doing well and who's not. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, it's only, um, it's not directly tied to to the money in, the, in, in absolute quantity terms. It's just, that's what constitutes success. And, right. the, and the broader point in, in, in the historical analysis is that as that 9.9% has gotten significantly wealthier with respect to the 90%, because that's what's happened. So the, the ratio of the wealth, the 9.9% to the 90% has, has grown dramatically. The hill is a uh-huh. lot harder to climb as that has happened the value systems that dominate all of society, not just the 9.9%, but everybody, have have changed. They've changed dramatically. Right. Great. I mean, one of the ways that you put it in the book that I found really nice was you say that the 9.9% being a member of this class or group, it's not so much about a bank balance, but it is a way of life. So maybe let's talk about the life of your archetypical 9.9 percenter where do they start where do they go to school who are their parents and we can talk about how those values at each stage of life kind of infiltrate the whole of the culture so there there's um there there are the people who are basically able to do it who are you know the paid up members of the 9.9 percent and let's start with Mm -hmm. them and then we'll see how that how the values filter down below. Um, and you know, I opened the book in a way with the, the easiest part of the, um, social analysis, at least for anybody who's been, uh, who's living in my neighborhood, for example, um, which is the kind of craziness about parenting. Right. All right. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and I had some fun with this. I admit it. Um, you know, the, the ads for the nannies, um, oh, so you know, <laughs> They, they are over so the top. So tell us a little bit about that, but, that, but they're that, real. that ad. They're real. I mean, that, that's the thing. I didn't make this stuff up. And I have to say, I put it in there because I've kind of seen that sort of behavior. And yeah, so just so that um, your listeners get what I'm talking about. Uh, I mean, these are ads where, you know, you have hyper successful business people who are very, very busy, too busy to really raise their kids. And yet mm-hmm. they... Um, are absolutely fanatically committed to raising the best possible child who is, you know, from the beginning, they're aiming uh-huh. straight for the <laughs> Ivy League. Um, and they are going to invest everything to make sure that this the, the, the little one ha- is fully developed spiritually, emotionally, and intellectually, uh, and ends up with a good resume. How do they do that? Well, 
they put out these ads for these these nannies, and these ads were insane. They basically ask for a nanny who has um, university level education in child development, who is capable of um, running spreadsheets so she can do clear analyses of household budgeting and household <laughs> expenses. Um, you know, one of them wanted the nanny also to be able to sort of. Uh, uh, you know, essentially be a decathlete because she wanted to have the kids go river swimming and um, yes. engage in other <laughs> kinds of exotic sports. Um, you know, it, and and this is not just, you know, one kind of crazy parent. This is a, it, it, it's happening in all the major metropolitan centers. But look, here, so all that's yeah. kind of fun and games with, um, you know, the, the, the foibles of, of the, the successful members of the 9.9% mm-hmm. and really arguably at the, at the sort of top end of that spectrum. Um, but a lot of the same ideas about parenting have filtered down. It's just they filter down to people who can't afford it. So, right. so, so then you, and, and this is backed up with a fair amount of um, sociological evidence, surveys, and so on, that parents, at, even at lower uh, levels of the wealth dis- distribution, are still investing huge amounts of time, and they'd love to have a nanny, but they can't afford the nanny, uh, right. but they essentially get stretched thin. And so one, that also shows up in incredible parental unhappiness. So it turns out that uh-huh. the United States has some of the unhappiest parents in the world, which is itself a paradox when you consider just how much happiness the whole parenting thing is supposed to ooze <laughs> in our culture, right? I mean, right. you know, with all the talk about the wonderful games and the thrilling adventures and the great development for your kid and all that it turns out the parents you got to do it 80 hours a week yeah miserable like anything else yeah unless you can afford the nanny right so right um so that's i think a an illustration of the way in which the 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 values that are kind of conceived and set at the Mm -hmm. at the top end then filter down but they filter down in a very problematic way so you know it's a I i take it as a sign of a system that's that's um uh out of skew and there's there's also good evidence comparing countries that backs up this kind of claim mm-hmm. that economic inequality dramatically changes parenting styles across the culture not just within specific classes but across the culture uh, and um that is interesting though that economic inequality just makes parenting more miserable for everyone yeah and and arguably it's not so great for the kids right i mean you know we've right. you know I don't think it's a terrible but, thing to but have let's, these let's crazy get to that. names. So we know who the parents are. That's the 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 model nine point nine percenter is born into, uh, you know, this family where they're raised by a very well educated but undocumented uh, nanny, and then and then they're they're off to school. I guess private, competitive preschool, private schools, and so on. What what is what is their path as they continue on? So what's happened is that. The private schools have increasingly become a um, you know a, a vector for those who have wealth to you know pass it on to their kids in the form of cultural um, capital. It's not just private schools, of course, because the right. the American system um, it's amazing. We we have a system that that takes this public good of education and it funds it locally, and the local areas are increasingly segregated by by wealth. Uh, so we have pseudo public schools. We have, you know, a kind of private school network masquerading as a public school network. You can go to these great public schools. You just have to buy the $2 million house in order to go there. And all of this, this wealth segregated public schools, the private schools, the super intensive parenting with the uh, expensive nannies. This is all with a view to getting these little 9.9 percenters into a great college so they can remain in the 
elite class. Is is that right? Yeah. So um, you know, this is also a good place to point out that some of the the core values of the nine point nine percent, if you take them down to the root level, they're actually good, right? I mean, education mm-hmm. is a good thing. Um, and um, that's what in moderation, like anything else. <laughs> well, it's it's in moderation, and it also has to be. It has to make um, sense. So, I mean, you, if you educate too many people to do something, well, then education stops being a a good thing. Um, and what's happened with the American education system, and people don't appreciate how much it has changed in this respect. Um, at first, there was no public university system. Then, starting in the late 19th century, we created a public university system. In the middle decades of the 20th century, up to the sort of final, uh, the third quarter, I would say, mm-hmm. that public system was remarkably effective in um, in bringing education to a large number of people who could make use of it. Um, but what's happened in um, the last, starting the last quarter of the 20th century and up through now, is that the, the education has become a great. Um, class sorting mechanism. So mm-hmm. we have too many people being uh, going through an expensive, an overly expensive higher education system after going through this very segregated and kind of unfair secondary system. Um, and those who can get into that top sliver, you know, they do very well. They get appointed to their positions, the 9.9%. And the other, one, other ones get this big load of debt that kind of sinks them like a rock right. <laughs> down into the 90%. Um, and it's not a, it, it really is um, not a good system. It's not a good system. And yet what, the way most Americans respond to it is rather than think about changing the system, they focus on the kids and they want, they want to change their kids. Personal responsibility. Yeah, yeah. They want to change the kids so that they succeed within this slightly insane system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you were you were asking what what happens then to the kids? Well, I mean, I'm 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 not a professional psychologist, but I do read you know <laughs> the, the the studies and I can see a bit of what's going on. I think. You know, it's, it, there's some gray in there. I think some, you know, it's great to, you know, push people and so on and throw them into competitions. Uh, but we've overdone it. I mean, it's just pretty obvious mm. that we've overdone it. I mean, it's crazy. You know, there, you have, you know, high degrees of, of, of mental illness among um, among teenagers. And I know, I know that it's not the college game isn't the only thing driving it. People will blame social media and so on. But, um, you know, it's, it's a factor and it's, it's, it's not good. And then that, that then raises the question, well, if we love our kids so much, why is it that we're doing this to them? What's, what's really mm-hmm. driving a process that we kind of know isn't best for them? And that, that takes us back to the structural economic inequalities that I'd like people to pay attention to. Right. So just to recap a little um, about this transformation of the education system, you're telling us that the public university system, the public college system in the States really started getting built up mid 20th century and it brought in a lot of new people. It became more egalitarian, more people were admitted and that probably helped them join the middle class. Um, But then it's changed since then. So can you tell us a little bit about how it got more expensive and more competitive leading to this high pressure race to get your kids, get your kids in? So um, there are many pieces to the story, but if there's there's a simple, straightforward one, it's that state governments decided that they simply wouldn't fund it. Mm. Um, The federal government came in with a well-intentioned, but ultimately hugely problematic program to uh, create debt 
that would allow students to go, but then <laughs> dump them with the debt. Um, and so the burden for the public universities shifted from uh, the public to um, individual students who then were in a position of having to place bets. And if you have a society where you know that if you go to college, you're going to have some chance of, of moving ahead and having an opportunity. And if you don't go, you're basically locked out. Well, you'll right. take risks. You'll take gambles. And that's what many um, students have done. So that's, that's the, I think, the most important part of the story. The other part has been the creation of these boutiques, uh, universities that have essentially hogged the prestige. And it's a, an obvious point, I hate to say, because I was a beneficiary of this um, uh -huh. system, you know, having gone to these fancy universities myself. But um, we have a system that funnels public money to the richest universities, right? They, they have these unbelievable endowments. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Princeton has over $4 million per student in its endowment. Um, Harvard has close to that. Yale has close to that. Um, and that money is partly from from you. Well, maybe not you because I guess you're in Canada, but, you know, it's from <laughs> taxpayers because all of that is um, tax-advantaged money. It's, it's um, right. you know, tax-deductible and donated. The, the returns are generally tax-free, and they, they're, of course, go to education. So um, that has um, created this strange system where we have – the best universities in the world uh -huh. because they are also the richest and they have they've cornered this prestige and they're also happen with the oldest american universities but they also are small they're tiny they don't serve right. the public they serve an increasingly narrow elite and they they end up being kind of trophies that that guide the lives of the of 9.9 percent you know as, as an individual playing within that game of course people make make the obvious choice you know do i send my child off to the, um, you know, underfunded uh, state college or university uh -huh. that's, you know, um, may not provide much of a leg up? Or do I, you know, make the extra effort and push them ahead with this, um, you know, by sending them into one of the special uh -huh. places? And so that that's, you know, people have, by and large, tried to do the second thing. It's increasingly difficult to do. Um, and, it, you know, obviously doesn't work. Um. Well, I mean, it doesn't work for everyone, but for the people who get in, you know, yeah, they do, I guess that's where I should, get, I should uh, appointed right. to No, the, it doesn't work for yeah. everyone. It's not. It's not a uh, a system that uh, moves society forward. It definitely moves individual people forward. Right. So, our nine point nine percenter competitive preschool, private school, Princeton. Then they graduate. They're going to go out there and make it. Uh, what happens to them next? Well, there, there's, so there's two other parts of the story we need to get out. There's right. that they get married and they get a house, uh -huh. right? Right. Um, <laughs> and there, there's a lot more to the story, by the way. I don't, I, I, I don't want people to think my book is just like uh, domestic analysis because I think there's a lot to be said about um, the, the economic structure and so on. But let's, let's just focus on, on the lifestyles of these semi-rich and not famous. They, um, they get married and there is evidence um, that we have assortative mating. That is that they mm -hmm. like tends to marry with like. And so the um, members of the elite tend to marry the members of the elite. And it, you know, aristocracies have always done this. And that's what, that's what we're seeing now. Mm -hmm. um, there are two other aspects of it that are worth drawing attention to. It turns out there's even more sorting at the bottom end. So if you are someone without a high school degree, the odds that you'll marry somebody else without a high school degree have gone up dramatically, and they've mm -hmm. gone up higher actually than the at the other end. You know, the people with 
advanced degree. So that's kind of interesting. Um, and the other much more important point is that um, it's not like, uh, you know, city mouse marries city mouse and country mouse marries country mouse, because what happens is that the city mouse marries the city mouse and the country mouse just doesn't get married at all. That is to say, um, uh. among the working classes, the bottom uh, deciles of the wealth distribution, the marriage rates have plummeted. They've just gone down. And again, it's, it's a complicated story. You can't I don't want to get all monocausal about it, but on the other hand, let's let's talk about the big you know elephant cause in the room, which is people don't get married if they don't have the money to make for a viable marriage partner. But you're saying that it's not the uh, deplorable morals of the working class. That's, uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that but of course that then then that's part of the value system of the nine point nine percent is to say, oh yeah, it is their 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 morals. They just have bad uh-huh. values, right? But you know these are these sociological trends. I think are so pronounced that uh, you can see them from afar, even with the haziest of statistics. You know, mm-hmm. marriage has kind of collapsed among the working classes, but it's actually holding pretty strong and steady at the top end of the economic spectrum. Uh, good for good for them, I guess. But yeah, um, yeah. and then there's the houses. So, so we should talk about the houses. Yeah. So they move into good neighborhoods because you know we the American system now is. Um, you know, your your zip code is a big part of who you are. Um, and part of that is that, um, of course, the zip code is what's what's uh, redistributed a lot of the, the wealth in the country. I mean, um, there are some analyses that suggest that um, the the reason why the 9.9% has held on to its wealth and the reason why the 9% has lost it is mainly that you've got homeowners in good zip codes in one group and you've got non-homeowners in bad zip codes in, in, in the other group. So... Um, that's a, a big part of the story, um, and here again, the kind of the, the cultural things start to play in when you when when you look at frankly um, the nimbyism, right? We all know about this, right? Nobody wants anything done in their backyard, so um, right. the nine point nine percenters move into a, a good neighborhood, and the first thing they do is is they throw cement over anybody's plans of uh, anybody else's plans of moving in, right? And make sure that the population density stays low. Yeah, well, they didn't they didn't pay to pay that money. To be in a neighborhood with, I don't know, a tall apartment building or public housing or, yeah, or anything no, else. It's, yeah, it's true. Look, and, and, and if you're a homeowner and you pay a certain amount of money for a, a property, then, of course, you're going to be extremely angry and upset when when someone yeah. does something to the neighbor that you perceive as, as um, affecting the value of your property. And, in fact, that's like that's the prime motivator of, of most people. And, uh, you know, this is where our, our, our political culture of – tracing everything back to individuals becomes so problematic because if you know if we if we just look at the individual behavior then people in that category will say yeah and what are you going to blame me for you know trying to protect my property value uh and i have to say well it's not like you're the cause of the problem but you're you're not solving the problem and you're you're kind of contributing to perpetuating it because the reality is that we do have a problem and it is essentially a, a social problem a public problem and don't kid yourself that this is sort of the the way nature works you know zoning laws are not created uh-huh. by nature we have zoning laws those are human creations they're often horribly applied they're often you know really appalling uh, abuses of local power and so on mm-hmm. um but you need to. We need to figure out how we can apply them in a way that's fair for everybody, and not in a way that's kind of uh, opaque, and that ultimately works to entrench um, the advantages and privileges of a small group in society. So maybe like, don't hate the player, hate the game, 
but also fuck the players too. Yeah, yeah. I guess we're going them, kind of no like the ambivalent thing there. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, don't hate the player, but you know what? The player is contributing to this thing, and you know, maybe maybe we all need to think about playing a different game. Um, and by the way. You know, they're playing different games in other countries. I'm not saying that any country has a, you know, a complete solution to any of these problems, Mm -hmm. but it's not like most of the solutions are impossible. I think that's another kind of dead end that Americans tend to get into. They, they'll say, oh, it's just nature. It's just, you know, you know, people are different. You know, some people are smart. Some people are dumb. Some people, you know, work hard. Other people don't work hard. And so you get, you know, and so consequently you get rich white neighborhoods in one place and poor neighborhoods of color in another place. It's just a fact of nature. And, And that's, you know, that's sort of delusion and self uh, indulgence in my view I regret to tell you it's not only Americans yeah no I I, I, totally totally accept that Uh, and and, you know one one of the interesting things is I've gotten feedback on this project from you know people in other countries um, and um, and by and large they they describe very similar phenomena in their own countries so no no country is Mm. solved but I do think that uh, America is kind of on the on the cutting edge in in, in not a great way on on this and and the numbers <laughs> the wealth distribution numbers back that up so um, it's much more skewed in the United States and the, and the other disparities too you know the the mm-hmm. the, the uh, racial disparities and you know the geographic disparities within the United States are are, are significantly more pronounced than in most of the uh, I guess what we used to call the industrialized countries. Um, so you know, the United States looks a little more like places like Brazil and India than it does Germany or Japan. Great. So that is a geographic perspective. The U.S. is more unequal than other countries. The disparities are getting uh, bigger and the upper class has more advantages. But what about a historical perspective? Has it always been the case that uh, the 9.9% or the upper middle class, the elite, Hasn't it always been the case that they're defending their own class position against those below them? I think historically it's too simple to say that that's just like a nasty class that's out to exploit. I think that actually they played a key role in uh-huh. creating a vibrant economy. Uh, but with rising inequality, with the growth of, of oligopoly and cart- cartelized markets and so on, uh-huh. they have become kind of twisted. And the 9.9% by sort of manning that machinery, by running, you know, the op- the sort of the machine that keeps that system in right. place are, are directly contributing to, to inequality. It's a more complicated argument, but... Um, so so uh, once upon a time, um, managers and and lawyers did contribute to society and uh, help the economy, and now they're more the helpers of the oligarchs funneling wealth upwards? Yeah, I think that that's. I mean, look, look, it's way too simplistic. There were absolutely rotten, you know, racist lawyers in the past, and so on. Uh-huh. Um, but um, when you have a a system that distributes wealth upwards to an oligarchy, those mm-hmm. oligarchs will tend to hire a professional class and a managerial class whose main role is to protect their wealth, and that's what right. they do, uh, and they do it very well. And it's it's very hard to disentangle uh, uh, that from a legitimate function because a, a prof- professionalism does have a certain legitimate function, right? You want your mm-hmm. doctor to be a professional in the sense that the doctor will um, give you advice that's in your interest and not in his or her 
economic interest, right? Right. Um, and you want a manager to kind of, you know, resolve the agency problem, be able to, you know, work on behalf of all the stakeholders in a particular economic activity. Um, so those are important roles in any functioning economy. But when you have massive inequality, they get twisted. Um, and, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, huge parts of the medical profession <laughs> at this point, sadly, are, 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 you know, organized around the project of maximizing uh, profits for a few large corporations. Um, and um, the managerial elite has become, you know, heroically parasitic. Um, you know, and I mean, no, seriously, when you look at the executive compensation, I mean, it's just, it's just hilarious. And I yeah. know some of these guys because, you know, they went to school with it at, at these fancy universities. And they're one, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're nice guys, but, you know, are, are they worth $20 million, $60 million a year? Of course not. It's preposterous. Uh-huh. It's just daylight <laughs> robbery. But, and, and of course, they're, they're beyond the 9.9%, but it's that 9.9% culture that essentially elevates them and, you know, Right, right. <laughs> Speaking of your rich friends from university, let me ask you how the economic aspect of your argument maps onto politics in America. Because on the one hand, the 9.9%, these are rich people. These are managers, professionals, they make a lot of money. And uh, stereotypically, traditionally, the Republican Party is the party that wants to cut rich people's taxes. But in your book, when you talk about the 9.9%, they sound a lot like rich liberals specifically. So how does the economic story map onto the political story in the States? The important empirical point I would make is that um, the 9.9% is not just white liberals. So um, mm-hmm. in, if we think about it in purely economic terms, terms it does skew um Liberal, but only by you know um, something like I don't know maybe ten points something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's pronounced uh, a huge structural issue in American politics right now is that yes the that upper middle class has migrated in large numbers to the Democratic Party. However, there's still a very large group that's in the Republican Party, and you can't say that that's not part of this whole thing. And I guess the, the, the final empirical point I'd make is that there isn't an obvious overlap between the um, economic interests of this group and their politics. And in fact, there's often a kind of a disconnect. And, and it's really only in their kind of the unspoken part of the politics where you see them acting in a sort of, you know, class interest way. So, mm-hmm. so you know, the, the, the overt politics of a lot of the 9.9% is in fact about reform. And it, that can be sometimes uh, right-wing reform, but usually it's left-wing um, but then when you look at their behavior, like, you know, what they do when it comes down to, you know, what to do with their local school and their neighborhood yeah. and so on, that's when you can see... That, we that's would when love you the state to, to build a lot more public housing, but in no specific neighborhood. Yes, exactly. In, in, some, in, in your neighborhood, <laughs> not mine. Exactly. So, um, so it, 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 it's complicated. And um, again, I, I just want to say that it, class analysis is too simple. It's mm-hmm. not... It, it, the important thing to understand is the way in which... Um, in, in unequal systems that, that essentially generate, you know, rents, to, to yeah. use the economic language, that those kinds of systems um, only create um, that the, the creation of class, economic class interests is only one small part of their action. Uh, because another much bigger part is the sort of disruption of uh, reasonable human relations and the creation of kind of disintegrated or fragmented societies. Okay. Let's 
let's just take a minute with that because this is a really interesting and big argument in the book. And the idea is that unequal societies don't just create separate classes with interests that are objectively opposed to each other. It's that inequality actually uh, harms human reason. It makes people less reasonable and therefore less able to get along properly. Is that is that right? Can you explain how that works? I, I, I am a philosopher, so I'm committed to yeah. making these abstract statements. And my abstract <laughs> statement is that inequality, the right podcast. inequality makes human beings unreasonable. And there, there are two uh-huh. uh, senses in which it does that. One is, is that I think it's unreasonable to be unequal. That is to say, I think human uh-huh. beings are naturally equal in a certain sense. I don't mean that everyone's the same height or anything like that. But I mean that if you organize human society, it's pretty difficult to do that in a way that does not presume um, a high degree of natural equality. And that's generally because you're organizing society for multiple generations, not just for you know you and me or the three of us gathered in a room, but rather um, uh, you're creating a system. And it's difficult to do that in a reasonable way without making the assumption about natural equality. But there's more to it than that. There's a kind of a, a sort of more you know biological argument, which is that um, human beings have certain mental heuristics that they use in analyzing moral situations and analyzing just um, problems that they face in their life. Uh, And those heuristics do have a kind of um, arbitrary character. They they didn't arise from pure reason. They arose from, you know, evolution, human experience, the general human condition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the most important condition um, throughout uh, the early uh, and most extended period of human development was equality. So human beings right. essentially have uh, a moral apparatus that starts with the presumption that humans are equal um, and then works around that. And in early human societies, there was nothing like the degree of inequality that obtained after uh, civilization, large-scale civilization, you know, beginning with what we call uh, right. somewhat problematically the agricultural revolution arose. So I think that th- that that kind of unreasonability is uh, when you take a cognitive apparatus that's des- that designed or that it works in certain kinds of conditions, and then you radically change those conditions, you get bad thinking. And that's so it's what the same happened. kind of argument. You know, uh, our taste buds go for sweet and fatty and salty things. And that's because yeah. in a certain natural environment that was nutritionally sound, whereas in an environment created by PepsiCo, it'll kill you. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm just taking that basic argument where it's, it's mm-hmm. like the, you know, the thinking fast, thinking slow argument yeah. um, that, uh, you know, we, we have these heuristics, these shortcuts. And I'm simply adding this observation um, that the degree of irrationality that, that involves uh-huh. is not a temporal embedded in nature for all time with all humans, it is rather something that changes with different social conditions and that in conditions of high inequality, high degree of you know ex- extraction, domination, uh-huh. rent seeking and all that. You our brains don't with, work so good. Our yeah. brains don't work so good. And we <laughs> and we like end up, you know, trying to trying to become something like the you know the great Gatsby. We don't realize what we're aiming for until we get it and then we discover that's not what we wanted. Um, yeah, sometimes you know it's not what you want, but you you, just, you do it anyway. Just keep going. Uh, yeah. Well, look, I we can't to... solve all the human condition here. We're just gonna <laughs> we're going for small bits. I want to just come back a little bit to uh, you know your plutocrat Princeton pals or rich people, the nine point nine percent and above, because you mentioned that look, it's ludicrous that anyone's worth fifty million dollars a year. 
But uh, for all of these upper classes, right, they're, they've got a justification, right? The, this natural belief that we go out into the market and we put in talent, effort, brain power, brain sweat, you say in the book, and the free market spits out money at us depending on how much we put in. And so if I'm one of these people saying I don't want anyone to build in my neighborhood, I'm going to tell you, hey, listen, I had to go through having a tiger mom and a helicopter dad and go through private school and do all this, fight my way up to the elite universities, and now I'm working 80 hours a week at Goldman, so how are you going to tell me I don't deserve this? I got here because I am the best and the brightest. I went through that, you know contest and I'm productive to society and that's why I'm getting so much money so that is why the 9.9% is pulling away not because not because we are uh, stealing from the 90% yeah well so I you know first thing I do is offer that person a copy of my book uh, <laughs> and then I would uh, point out um, that this is this is what the people they would pay someone to read it for them <laughs> That's right. But this is what the, the people who helped build the um, pyramids in Egypt would have said, too. I mean, mm-hmm. in, in turns out that in building those pyramids, you had gangs of workers and you had uh, or slaves, basically. And, and then you had um, overseers and the overseers did, did pretty well. I mean, the archaeological mm-hmm. evidence says that, you know, they got they got some fatty cuts of beef and so on. They were they were all, you know, uh, it worked out pretty well for those for that class of people. And um, you just have to ask yourself, how happy are you um, building pyramids for the pharaoh? I mean, if, you know, if, yeah, if that's mm-hmm. how you find meaning in life, okay. Um, the other thing I would ask, I mean, I can confront that sort of argument head on. And, I, you know, I try to do that in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, confront it head on by sim- pointing to the facts that, you know, this so-called free market that that person is talking about is quite fictional. Um, that when they want to maintain the value of their home, they're not relying on a free market. They're they're demanding that the government step in and prevent things from happening, prevent people from developing um, so that they can uh, retain the value of their property. So I can show that that's a fiction. Um, I can look at the merit claims and show that statistically it's kind of nonsense. You look at the distribution of wealth and you look at the mm-hmm. distribution of anything that would qualify as merit and there's simply no, no match-up. But what I find is that that's not effective because um, we're talking about a religion and a religion right. that, that helps people make sense of life. And I think also because that, like any religion, it has some, you know, kernels of truth. It's got something that's, that's good. I mean, of course, working hard is better than not working hard. And of course, people should get rewarded for working hard and, you know, get punished or not rewarded for not working hard. But um, what I would ask those people to do, what I hope to try to do is ask them to sort of uh, looking at themselves. That's why I say, you know, are you happy building a pyramid for the pharaoh? Because um, my sense is that they're not as happy as they think they are. Mm. Um, that their idea of success is has been handed to them, and they're filling it out by getting the job at Goldman Sachs, and then, you know, getting the big house and so on. Um, and yeah, it might be better than many of the alternatives, but is it really working out so well? I mean, you know, the the extreme stresses that that involves, you know, the the sort of near you know, near abuse levels of child rearing, uh, you know, all that right. kind of stuff. Is it working out? And it's not just a question about self-interest there. It's that if it's not working out, it's, 
probably because the big injustices in the system are in some ways playing out at a micro level too, even for those who are supposedly doing well, even those even even for the winners, mm-hmm. an unfair system tends to have, you know, little bits of unfairness and Well that's one of the great things, you know, about about the book is that you're talking about a class that has gotten so much richer than everyone else and in many ways is doing very well, but it doesn't sound very fun to be them. <laughs> it's it's almost like the rising inequality. It's, uh, you know, any elites are kind of on a tight uh, a tightrope or a high wire, but you're just raising it higher and higher and raising the stakes of falling, which which makes people all the more anxious in the way in the way they conduct their lives. But you say that it's it's handier to ask people if they're happy building pyramids for the pharaohs. But there is also a lot of points in the book, I just want to add for anyone who's listening, where you make some pretty good arguments and illustrations of why people don't necessarily deserve this money in the way they think they do. So if you think, right, you talk about the the McKinsey meeting, and they're basically getting a bunch of money from authoritarian governments who are extracting rents, and they're like, God, we're so smart. Like, how... Uh, uh, we 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 made this with our with our spreadsheets and our and our brains and our Ivy League degrees. So, the question there is just what do you still are you still concerned with debunking this myth of meritocracy? Because I still feel that when I speak to people in the nine point nine percent, they really do believe in this sort of natural view of the economy that um, they're being rewarded for something special about them. Yeah, no, I'm 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 very concerned to debunk it. I mean, that's that is you know, I guess the uh, you know central argument uh, of the book, and it's it's a, a central form of this this delusion, right? That um, that I want to get at inequality mm-hmm. leads people to misunderstand themselves. It leads them to misunderstand the sources of their own value. The, the the reality about human societies is that we are we as humans are incredibly successful in creating wealth when we work together. It's simple, it's banal, and it's true. We wealth basically comes from people working together. And yes, individual talents, of course, that add you know the guy who can you know chop the the five blocks of wood instead of the four. Well, yeah, maybe that helps a bit too. But the more far more important thing is establishing that cooperation, that form of of, of justice, and. When we imagine that there's a society where everything comes down to individual merit, we're just misunderstanding where our our, our actual wealth, our real well-being comes from. And mm-hmm. and yeah, these these nine point nine percenters now. I mean, you know, can just I, I just have to say, give me a break. I mean, you know, they're of course it's it's wonderful that they have these really high-paying jobs, but it's not that they didn't create those jobs with their brains. Those jobs were created right. by a maldistribution of wealth, and they just the, their brains help help them figure out how to you know be the one who happened to you know latch onto the little mm-hmm. lump of cheese that was sitting there waiting for them. So, you know, and do they really think that that these other people who didn't you know succeed in this uh, you know the bizarre admissions processes and the mm-hmm. and the strange interview protocols and all that that those people have have less merit that they actually contribute less to society because they didn't, you know, snag on to this uh, spot that had me seated next to a gusher of free cash. I mean, come on, grow up, guys. Yeah, well, you know, it's I uh, I not along vigorously when you say it, but I went to you know I went to the special universities in England, and so I will say that 
privileged kids from everywhere are kind of like this, but the Americans, the American Ivy Leaguers were the worst. Just in terms of telling me about their achievements. Like, you're 20. You don't have any. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. And and the the sense of entitlement that they exude is just it's astonishing because they come in and they kind of expect that they're going to be put in the uh, you know, right next to the chairman's seat or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, for uh, on the basis of, of yeah of, of nothing, but that but they have been brought up in a system that tells them that they have this remarkable value, and th- and this is something that is observable in human societies throughout history. I mean, the the people who um, are raised in power simply come to believe that the power emanates from within their very own little bodies and brains and it's, it's hard not, not true. true it's the only thing you can but, control yeah. yeah exactly and so and you know it's it's better for them in a sense to believe that but it's not better for society and ultimately i i guess i'm arguing it's it's not great for them either i mean you know living in a delusion i mean this book i should also mention it originated out of my another book i've just finished on the civil war and the struggle over slavery mm-hmm. and i think that some of the same processes played played out in the rise of the southern slaveholding oligarchy so anyway that's a, mm-hmm. but that's a whole another topic let me let me ask you this then you were talking a little bit about how it affects uh, 9.9%ers to believe this about themselves that they are taking credit for it. What about the effects on the people who don't make it? Because uh, the way you tell the story, it's that the 9.9%, it's a culture, and that applies far more widely than the people who actually have the money to belong to it. So what does it tell people who don't, don't get the McKinsey job? Yeah, I mean, sociologically speaking, the the data is pretty incontrovertible. I mean, it tells them, broadly speaking, and only in a statistical sense, not in every individual case, that um, they are less worthy. They're less worthy of finding a marriage partner, if that's what they want. They are um, less worthy of social respect, and that that they are unproductive, that they don't really contribute much to society. That's what it tells them. And it shows up in, you know, the the health numbers, uh, mental health, as well as physical health. Um, all in a, in a broad statistical sense, but there's absolutely no question that this is the message that is getting down very effectively to the people who are are, are, are not uh, making it. And I, I, again, I just want to stress that mm-hmm. I'm not saying that they're you know they're everyone in the bottom ninety percent is sad. That's just not the case. Plenty yeah. of people find you know really active, productive lives you know with any level of economic um, well-being. But statistically speaking, that's what we are creating is a society where. You got you know a small group who can claim to be happy because they've achieved what it is you're supposed to uh, mm-hmm. achieve, but that success does come to a significant degree on the on the basis of uh, keeping a whole bunch of other people uh, feeling um, unworthy and lacking in respect. Yeah, it's interesting and uh, really too bad. <laughs> yeah, this Suck this book deal with it. Yeah, <laughs> I. Uh, I have a feeling this book pissed some people off, right? So I wrote a very short piece once about meritocracy, and uh, it's about, you know, it's false, and believing it makes you a worse person. And that was years ago, and to this day, I still get the occasional message telling me I'm an idiot. So who who did this book aggravate, and, like, why are they mad at you? Yeah, it it obviously did. uh, It does piss a lot of people off and yeah I, I get um a fair amount of that kind of um uh reaction um and 
Look, there's a really simple explanation. I mean, this is this is part of the um, religion that most people use to organize their lives. Um, uh-huh. And and that religion convinces them not only that they are good, but that they're doing good for the world, right? Like, so when they go out and, you know, work hard and get that, you know, uh, that uh-huh. professional job, um, you know, this is like, uh, it, it's good. It's what society is, is telling them to do. And anyone who suggests otherwise is just, you know, the devil. Mm-hmm. Um and you know you get uh, so that there, there, there's that one individualistic response. There's also the um, you know the, the success of many years of red baiting and anti-communist stuff that basically tells people that anybody who dares to question our market suggests that it's not free and suggests that there are a lot of oligopolies mm-hmm. running around there, mm-hmm. and a lot of cartels, all that. Anyone who who, who who breathes a word that suggests that the market is not absolutely free is a communist. Oh, yeah, the Reds, is, is yeah, so, yeah. Is the socialist and so on, and, and, and it's like Venezuela, next stop. So there's there's a certain amount of that. But, I, you know, I, I think the main the main reason, is that, though, is the first. It's, it's that, um, you know, people organize their lives around this um, pursuing merit. And I think uh-huh. that, you know, um, I, 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 look, I, I, I insist that there is some good idea at the root of it. I just, my issue is don't mistake um, an ideal for a description of reality. And I think that that's what a lot of these people are doing. And of course, then they, when you say it's not real uh-huh. and they, they think you're, um, you're, you know, destroying their, their very fabric of existence. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, do you, your, your personal history from what I know of it from this conversation seems a pretty straight down the line, 9.9, uh, percent type life, like fancy schools, management consulting, and then you could even say, you know, the cultural power of being an author. Um, and the reason I ask is, have have you run into problems with old friends or acquaintances where they're like, Matthew, what are you what are you saying? This is ridiculous. <laughs> no, I mean, I I, I think that um, most. Um, most members of the 9.9% have, have enough self-awareness to, to grant that there is some um, mm-hmm. validity to the critique. So I, I think that this sort of extreme hostile reaction isn't actually representing a majority. I think it's representing a kind of, you know, fanatical minority. Um, I think most are, are, are open to it. I mean, I get some resistance and and yeah, there's the, um, you know, the sort of what I consider the pseudo hypocrisy charge, you know, like, oh, yeah, well, you got a fancy degree. So I guess, you know, you can, you know, you're just engaging in self-critique or guilt or something like that. To which I would just say, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I don't know if it matters. I mean, like, okay, you you know, you could point, say whatever you want about me. I'm just calling what I think is what I see. Um, yeah. I think and I you would also, know, right? <laughs> and and I, I should also just point out to him in terms of my own personal history, um, choosing to become an author. You, you know, you're right that there's there's a certain kind of you know pursuit of cultural power or something like that. Mm-hmm. I have to say that I have not achieved it, so that's you know. But, but <laughs> nonetheless, there, there there is that. However, I think you know you have to at least acknowledge that uh, as an economic plan for. Uh, getting in the nine point nine percent, it's a really, really bad plan. Okay, so I just, oh, wanna, yeah. just want everyone yeah. to know that. Um, I, this is, I, I mean, I'm not going to say I do it all out of charity, but there wouldn't be any difference if I did it out of charity. Um, and the other point I would just make historically is that while I'm, in my um, writing, I make a, a big deal out of the um, my my grandparents' generation who did come mm-hmm. from a 
uh, temporarily wealthy and then lost it all kind of um, situation. I mean, my, my background was was extremely middle class. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it was like my, you know, my father was a, a, a Marine and we, you know, lived in the, not in the, uh, in the nicer suburbs, but in the kind of plain vanilla ones. Um, and, um, and I know it sounds um, naive and unpleasant to, to suggest this, but when I went to, when I applied to universities, I had no, I, I really did not know that it would lead mm-hmm. to a high income. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know what a management consultant was. And I went None of us did. (laughs) Yeah. And I I went to those places because I thought that's where people who wanted to do research into, um, you know, natural things into, into, you know, what actually happens Uh in the world. That's I thought that's where they go. You find smart people who don't give a crap about, you know, stupid jobs and bureaucracies and titles, but who just want to investigate nature, want to study physics or, as it turns out, philosophy. So I know it sounds kind of. Um, naive, but that's that's kind of what I thought. And I guess if I have an ideal that I, you know, uh, some sort of nostalgia, which of course is always problematic. But if I have that, it would be for, you know, something along those lines. Where yeah, you have, you know, of course you have smart people trying to, you know, look for, uh, you know, centers of excellence and do great things. But you know, it doesn't have to be about investment banking. I mean, it can be people who actually want to <laughs> learn something about the world. Well, yeah, I mean, I was not at all uh, trying to accuse you of being rich or something. <laughs> it was it was much more of just the point you've almost made, which is that coming from outside of these elite institutions, it's easy to think that they're there, you know, for this uh, higher purpose of learning, you know, the about the big questions and so on and, and natural things. But having, having gone through it, uh, that probably gave you a much better perspective to write this kind of book to see the universities as more of a sorting mechanism and so on than this romanticized uh, view of of disinterested learning. Right, right. Okay, well, um, this has been great. I want to thank you for being on. This has been a super interesting conversation. And if you'd like to add anything for the audience, please, please do now. Oh, no, I just want to thank you for, you know, taking the time and having a very interesting conversation. It's really wonderful. All right. Thanks.